the boats were emptied out up at the Spanish Arch and the women would go over then and they, there was buyers coming over from Scotland and every place then you see and they were buying up the fish now some of the townspeople had buy the fish as well but these I remember for the herrings mostly the Scotch people used to come and they'd have all barrels and everything and they'd be barreling the herrings sending them off to Scotland and the boats would be in the dock Screeching gulls, lapping waters, shifting tides and names like Rope Walk and Dogfish Lane are all nostalgic reminders of the Tlata, Galway's ancient fishing village on the western bank of the Corrib as it enters Galway Bay. The name Tlata is derived from the Irish word Tladhoc, meaning seashore. The village was very much a self-governing community with its own ruler or king who was elected each year on June the 24th, the Feast of St. John. The village has a tradition that places its existence before Galway itself was established when the Normans came in the 12th and 13th centuries. A village that once had about 500 families and 500 boats fishing the sheltered waters of Galway Bay. Boats of different shapes and sizes, as Padre O'Dowd recounts. There were four types of boats, of sailing boats, all, of course, with their black sails and brown sails. The the admiral, if you like, the king of the cad himself, had a white sail. First of all, you had the Galway hooker itself on barge moor, and that could go up to actually 40 40 feet long. It was a very, Mm. very long boat. And then you had, um, of course, the lahuaj, which was not actually half the size, but literally three-quarters the size. And then you had the favourite, my favourite type, which you'll still find in the Clada today, the Glochog, which I think comes from the Irish meaning uh, a, a beautiful boat. Um, that would be the third one. And then the, you had the, the Pukon. Now, the Pukon was possibly the size of the Glochog, but smaller again, uh, and very, very difficult to, to sail. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert on the actual um, sailing, um, if you like, the, the sails of boats and things like that, but it had this only one sail, which you manoeuvred around the mast, which is quite difficult, and especially in Galway Bay, in the seas out there, you had to be an expert salesman. But these four type of boats constituted, we'll say, the 300 that used to sail off at the one time. And uh, when they reached the fishing waters, then the, the um, king would say, fine, Right, we start fishing now. And the whole lot would scatter all to their own little areas and they would lower the nets. Now, the fishing that they carried on was what we call fixed net fishing. In other words, they didn't trawl. And uh, then used nets for, um, for herring, but for all other type of fish, they used what was called the long line or the spillet. And, of course, that was really the, the downfall of the clada because they did not trawl. But if changing times and changing circumstances altered the fishing habits of the villagers, the call of the sea was always there, at least on a part-time basis, as Mary Brown remembers. When my grandfather came first to Galway, he had an attached house down in a lane where they used to call it Rector's Lane, and he would start weaving there. And then he came on and a bit, and he bought a boat. 
And he was, when he'd weave during the day, he was a very hard-working man, really. He'd weave during the day, go out fishing at night, come in, and my grandmother would take all the fish over and sell it to the buyers. They'd throw it up on the quay over in Spanish Arch now, there, just at the Spanish Arch, and they'd sell it there, then, you see. The women folk were very much part of the Tlada fishing tradition, and Kate Corn was no mean hand at splitting open a herring. They worked in rounds, putting herrings and packing them. You go a day, like to cut them, and you go in the next day to pack the barrels. And that time on a toast in the barrel. And they might, you might have a partner with you. So you'd have to share like six shillings maybe for three barrels. But there was a lot of hair for not attached to it. But if you were quick enough, you could turn out like three or four or five barrels. So it all depended on who your partner was. Some of them now were older women. And, to, and then you'd have to salt them as well. You know, pack them with salt. And then two days afterwards, you'd have to go in and top them up again. Two days were packed that way. All along, say, rows of, rows of four, or rows of six, maybe. It all depends on the width of the bar. I'd say it was smelly kind of work. Well, we didn't mind it. <laughs> the man that, that employed us, like he had a, a, a tackle shop there, Rowan's, and uh, they had the, he had a big shed like for doing all this work, cutting his fish and doing it. And then he had a man, he had other men then for hooping the barrels. It was a good industry, so it was. One of the strange things about, about the whole fishing setup there was that whereas the men went off and fished for often two or three days and came back uh, exhausted, the minute they, their boat uh, touched the quayside, it was the women that took over. And it was the women, actually, who took out the fish, marketed the fish, sold the fish, and controlled the money. Strange, you know, in that sense that it was a matriarchal system which was not common here in the west of Ireland at the time. And um, we have references to them selling the fish in a line, if you like, in a loop going from the Cladda up to uh, Raven Terrace, Dominic Street, Bridge Street, and down into Cross Street, into K Street, that type of a, 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 a situation, which wasn't the best, of course, because selling fish, you had to gut the fish, and, and you know, it was very messy, and uh, the citizens of Galway complained quite a lot. The Dominicans and the Church of St. Mary on the Hill always had strong associations with life in the Tlada. And as we look nostalgically across the water towards the Spanish Arch in the company of Antaro Hedoin, other days and other times flood the memory. Dominicans came here in 1488 and they took over a rundown chapel up on the hill, I presume they repaired it, and since then they've been very much a part of the uh, Tlada community. Uh, the uh, Tlada fishermen, they repaired their nets on the floor of the church, which was the only big space available. The Dominicans, I suppose, they share the ups and downs, the sorrows of the local people. I think that comes through very much in the cemetery book of the last century where 
the number of people buried or died during the cholera and uh, the famine years. Their fishing went, uh, went with the coming of the trawlers. They could not compete against the trawlers. And then about the 1890s, sorry, we'll say about the 1900s, a strange boat appeared on Galway Bay. And they still talk about it. They call it the Gunnamore. And about 1900 up to 1910s, these big, if you like, battleships of the English Navy came up. And uh, they were, never saw the likes of them before, of course, these big dreadnoughts or whatever they were. The sad thing about them was that the sailors on board these came ashore and the young men of the Clada, who had no money in their pockets from the fishing, met these sailors who had money. And all it took was just one of the Clada lads to join the English Navy, and they all joined. Unfortunately, so many of them were perished during the First World War. And they were great sailors. Sailing was in their blood, and they were valued. And at one stage, then, we have practically the whole generation of the Clada, the young Clada men, all gone, joined the Navy for the war. The older boats were there, the boats were the older people were there, the boats were there, and there was nobody literally to go up with them. So in recent more recent times and you hear this all this reference all the time about the fact that the fishing was going down and the men were on the Gunamora. And that's literally what, what happened. The boats were sold then of course to, to the Gunamara people. Um the Clada boat was always looked on as the best boat and the, the old boats then sadly were sold uh, to carry turf and carry um Provisions, provisions, we'll say, turf to the Crinunamal that what we have at the moment, to Kinvara, and carry provisions to the Iron Islands. And that's how many of the boats actually finished out their lives. I loved a girl from a Galway town but our love could never be For I long to see the world And the treasures it held for me So I left my native home Sailed across the raging sea And to Boston I did go the traditions, the customs and the changes in Clader life are often discussed when long-serving citizens like Kate Corn, Eileen Cloherty and Mary Brown get together for an evening. Well, if they were going out to fish now and they were passing down like and they met this woman and she had red hair, they wouldn't go out, they'd just turn back. Or a white cat, they didn't like to meet a white cat either, but a black cat. They looked to meet a black cat. No, they wouldn't go out. They'd say it was... They wouldn't catch anything for the day. Now, I remember my father telling me one time, he used to take the boat out on a Sunday, cruising around the bay, like, you know, and a crowd of them would go out. And this Sunday he was going to go out. And my grandmother said to him, Listen here now, you weren't down at Mass this morning, and you're not going out until you go to Mass. And he didn't go out, but there was four or five of them went out. I think John Follen, there was two brothers anyhow, and Merton Follen went out. And I don't know who was the rest. It's so far back now, it's hard to remember. And they went out with the Melodian, and they were playing out in the bay. And there was a storm came up, and weren't the last 
coming back, the boat capsized and they were all lost out on the bay. And she said, if you went, you'll be gone too. She said, no, but I put you down to mess. And that was it. And were they drowned? Well, they were drowned. There was two brothers down. There was only one of them saved that was out on the boat. There was two brothers, and I think there was two more. There was four altogether, as far as I remember now was drowned that morning. It was a Sunday morning, Sunday evening coming back and the sky, he said, got awful dark and everything. And the next thing this big storm came up and they were drowned on the way. They were taken up over in town. And another thing they had, if they seen a rat, that was that. But they never the thirty people didn't like a seen rat. They had the word for it, cold garden. And the group would be here to see the rat, it showed the other cold iron. They'd all turn back. They wouldn't go out to they wouldn't go out that time to to fish. So um then when they would go out fishing, the that's only all fish they ever had then they ever bothered to fish. And uh, the wives would be home and they used to make the griddle cakes. And uh, then when the boats would come in, the children would go down and drop the fish. And that was the meal then for the evening, and that had the riddle key. They were very independent people. They had their own industry, fishing industry, and their own, their own homes at the time. Well, building their own homes, when say, the son now got married out of the house, and they go back to town, which is across the bay near Orden Moor, and they spring over the limestone and the boats to build the house for the son, or the daughter, yeah. All the land was there, and it was Alcorn's land, supposed to be. He was an English lord because we used to pay uh, ground and tensions a year. And then we got compensated for the thatched house, so we much. You know, some of the money was valued five pounds. The corporation used to say, You can't take all the stones which are in the walls, we only want the ground. And they got it all for nothing. Here beside the Dominican Priory is a building that housed Episcatorial School, which was established in the last century by Father Raymond Rush during the bad old famine days. The link also, I think, comes through very much in things like the Episcatory School, which was built by Father Rush in the last century. He saw the need for some training for the fishermen and set up that school he went off to London and collected £1,200 to start the school. He said that Protestants as well as Catholics supported him. And he, the, he organised courses in, in the art of sailing, navigation, uh, as well as making of nets, making of lines. And then the reason I was looking over the... The programme of the school, I was very much impressed by the, the wide range of subjects. So the, in that school, which uh, there was an average at one period of about 400 children on the roll, uh, about, I suppose, 60% boys, uh, they were prepared to be fishermen out on the bay, but they were also prepared to be sailors on the the merchant fleet. Now, was this school for boys and girls? Yes, it was for both boys and girls. And the figures I've seen, about a proportion of two, two to one, two in favour of boys, and, uh, the smaller proportion of girls. And the girls would learn needlework and 
embroidery, uh, which may be the, connected with the grand old tradition in the Tlaid of beautiful embroidery, beautiful cloaks, beautiful shawls. May have had something to do with the with that school of the last century. Was it a primary or a post-primary school? No, it was a primary school, and later on, it was officially recognised by the uh, Board of Education, the predecessor of the Department of Education, and it remained an official national school until the 1930s, when the new national school in the Clad was built higher up on the hill and uh, it's closed then but it's interesting that um, it's now a school again last year an all-Irish school was opened there Kalashta the Kurube they took in first year students and this year they'll take second and third and work their way up to the school so that's a lovely development to have an all-Irish school in what was once an Irish-speaking village. But time marches on, and in the 1930s, the authorities started to demolish the old thatched houses that were such a distinctive feature of Clader. They were replaced by dwellings which were considered more modern and sanitary. They were warm in the winter and cool in the summer. Attached houses always that way, like, you know. But they used to keep them beautiful. They were whitewashed, inside and outside. Every weekend, everything would be pushed out and scrubbed, everything would be scrubbed. And the hobs, that's the fireplace now, it'd be whitewashed. Be all whitewashed, really. They were lovely attached houses. There was a big row of attached houses here now where I'm living. And they were knocked down like, you know. Mm. Well, when did all that end, or what happened, do you remember? 1950, it ended, like, you know. And, no, that was the year I came up. I'd say it be about four years before that, like. And they, were, they fought against it and tried to stop them from knocking them. But they should have kept a few of the attached houses, definitely. And what did the bulldozers come along? Oh, the bulldozers came along. Well, there was the whole lot of them down and gave little or nothing for the houses to the people that owned them. Well, did the corporation build them new houses then? Oh, the corporation built those houses then, you see. That's how we got up here then, like, you know. And I, as I told you before, now I wanted to slate my own house and put in sensory arrangements in it. And uh, my husband and myself went up and asked them, could we do it, like, you know, and they said, no, you'll have to get out. It's our ground. Well, what excuse did they give for demolishing all the thatch cottages? Uh, san- no sanitary arrangements in them. That was the cause of the whole lot of it, really, like, you know, because there was no sanitary arrangements. You mean there were no toilets? No toilets. And where did the people Well, dry. Go? They all had dry toilets then, and this corporation van you go around and you put all your stuff out into that, and that's the way it was. So that's why they were not, really. Well, I'll tell you about the toilets. Uh, Twelve o'clock, it's kind of late, and uh, the tide would be full in. They'd wait till the tide would be full in, and they used to go down with buckets 
and into and the tide would go out and bring that all out. Well, how I know that much about it was there was little Coast Guard houses living uh, at least uh, Mrs. Pollington and the mall, and they all used to uh, like they wouldn't look out and say they'd go down to see was the tide in, and if it was well if it wasn't in till two or three they'd still go down. They all went off with their buckets. Yes, they, yeah. I and see. Who did that? The women or the men? Oh no, the women. Oh no, the the men wouldn't not at all. The the women should do that. Well, it must have been a great boon then when they got the um, sewerage and all that. It, they did. But then again, uh, as you say, like, it, if the tide didn't bring it out, that's what I often think of now. Uh, like, long before they cleared away all that sewerage, like, uh, they had... Uh, that was all going down then, and they wouldn't go out. And it used to be that high with the, the muck then, yeah. like, like oh, over yeah. that... Like, it used to be all muck over that, like, you know. And uh, but still, there'd be no smell like there is now. And, and they're thinking now of using Mutton Island for disposing oh, sewerage. Oh, they won't. No, they'll take the whole look of Galway Bay away if they put that there. They will. And there's many more. Long before they ever suggested that, it was said to me, I hope to God they won't uh, uh, do anything with that uh, lighthouse. If I were in Cladda, I'd stand on the pier. Tis there I'd see fishermen mending their gear. I'd roam on forever where the white waves roll still. Here's a toast to you, Cladda, at the foot of their hill. They had some fine hurlers, but now they're all gone. May their names live forever, like the great Father Tom. In their green and black jerseys, I remember them still. Here's a toast to you, Clada, at the foot of Fair Hill. And now to conclude, here's good luck to you all. On land or on sea, or wherever you may roam, may your homes be peaceful by God's holy will. Here's a toast to you, Clada, at the foot of Life was innocent and carefree in those days, and simple pleasures brought their own enjoyment. You'd meet this fella like and you'd be talking to him and everything. But there'd be a crowd of us together. We'd never peer off now like. And we'd go off out the pram and we'd have a mouth organ. And we'd start dancing on the pram. That's where you learned how to dance. And then I remember the first tech social I went to. Well, I had an awful job. My grandmother was very strict to get out to it. And I'd say, my other two cousins were going to then you see, and I said, well, Moan is going and Jean is going and why can't I go? They have brothers and sisters, but you haven't. And you can't go now. But my aunt went over and talked her into let me to this tech here. Well, it was great, I thought. And do you know we talk about it now? But the Angelus was ringing and we were coming out of that dance. But there was no such thing as drink in it. Do you mean the Angelus the following morning? The following morning. And what are we doing all night? dancing and we had a big dinner like you know and talk and that's all we were doing we'd be all together there and we'd have sets and the dickens knows what like you know never outside and there was no drink 
and uh, we'd have tea then and coming home then we'd go out to 7 o'clock mass in the jazz church all out to 7 o'clock mass then we'd be all together Must there be any curtain going on at all? Ah, well you'd get a nod kiss now and again like you know you'd have to do that wouldn't you so that should be it then like you know but that's all no the times have changed terrible bad now I don't like the times now really mm. that's in it no no what you hear like you know there was big families in Flatter. My mother, my gran- my grandson, my mother-in-law had twenty-one children. Some of them lived, some of them died. But she had a loft divided. The boys upstairs, and then there's small little rooms, and that there was the girls. You laugh at me now, but I couldn't tell you what kind of condom is. I never seen one. I never knew anything about them, and then like that. No, never. And we never had any kind of that. Do you know, uh, we used to go out the prom, uh, for our fun, we used to go out the prom after the confraternity, in the, we'd have a confraternity down the chapel, and we'd all go out, girls and boys, out in the prom, and uh, Paddy Griffin would have the melodeon, and we were dancing there till 11 o'clock. Also at Wakes, we find that Wakes was not a, a, a time of real sorrow in the sense that somebody died. Wakes were a time of um, enjoyment in the sense that it was a coming together of all the people, uh, first of all, of course, to sympathise, but also to partake. Now, the partaking meant that there you would get um, some sustenance for, 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 for the adults, which would be of the liquid type. The youngsters even loved to go there because they would get jam. Uh, this comes across a lot that they would get jam and of course there was the doujin to be smoked and uh, there was snuff and it was a type of if you like uh, a, a, a situation where people uh, were mourning fine, fine but also they were uh, if you like celebrating the fact that that person was going from one world to another and uh, rather strange customs took place as well where you had games being played uh, around in the room where the corpse was you had chairs, for instance, put in a semicircle, and the people would sit down on the chairs, and there would be literally a ringmaster who would go out and he'd cut a stick, and he would stand in front, and he would start off uh, a game called the house that Jack built, and he would, it, you know, it was played in other parts of the country as well. But this is a very serious here, where he would stand in front of you and he'd say, "You say it after me. This is the house that Jack built," and he would go to each person, and then he would add on and add on. And I have, thanks to Michael Griffin of the Cada, he has given me the whole, uh, if you like, uh, whole story of that, you know, all the, the spiel, if you like, and how they had to do it. And if you didn't, if you missed, then you got a slap. And if you got three slaps, eventually you were out. And this, was going, this, this would go on for hours and hours. They had, of course, uh, the spin the bottle as well, and we all know what that means. So it was a time of... <laughs> and the poor corpses lying there the in the bed. lying there. And uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, in the initial stages as well, what I mean by the initial stages, when we first have written records of this, some of the wakes went down for two or three days. And it was a time of, you know, enjoyment in the sense of, of people would come and... and, and, and uh, you know, sympathise. And, of course, then you had the serious side. You had the Queen and the went on. Molly, do you remember then at some wakes <laughs> they would have the band Queen, or the Keening Woman? Yeah, the, the, why did you die? 
भाई ना जाने मारला टूटना जाने को भाई ना माकन Well, the Cutter Ring has, it's called a Fader Ring. It, it, it really didn't start in the Cutter as such. We have evidence, for instance, of it being uh, in Roman times. Um, there are Spanish connections, there are various connections, but it really came into being in the Cutter in the last century especially. There are two origins, of course. One, two, one a fable that a certain um, uh, strange eagle flew over... Um, uh, a bridge one time that was being built and dropped the ring down to one of the a lady of the Joyce clan uh, and uh, she was a very rich lady and she spent her money building bridges and this seemed to be a divine intervention if you like to pay her and this ring had was the, was the kind of design the other of course uh, more plausible story obviously would be the one of Richard Joyce who uh, was a clad man who was captured by the Moors it seemingly the, the, the Moorish um, pirates used to used to operate quite along quite a lot along the coastlines of, of, of Ireland in the 16th and 17th centuries. And this young man was captured and made a slave, uh, I think, in Algeria, according to tradition. And there he learned, um, he became a goldsmith, uh, if you like, a slave, but acted as a goldsmith. And he became so good at his work that um, he became famous. And then I think it was Richard, or sorry, Charles III, uh, when he came into power, um, impelled on, on these um, Arab people, tribal people or whatever they were at the time to, to let go of all the, um, uh, any, any of the British subjects that were there and he was let go and he wanted to come back home and it's, the story tells that his master wanted to give him half his fortune and his, his daughter in marriage if he would stay, but no, but he came back and seemingly he set up, he was one of the first goldsmiths, well, he wasn't one of the first, but one of the more famous ones and uh, to he, to this man, then of course, is attributed the the, the, the clattering that he brought back the idea of of, of the um, of you know the clattering itself, the design of it, and that it took off from there. Well, there's a crown as a crest to remind us of honour and clasping a heart that God blessings will bring. A circle of gold always keeps home contented with true love entwined in my old clattering. That's the story now of the clattering. And that's my great-grandmother's clattering that I have on my finger. And as they come into the line, it's Patricia, number one, Patricia. Sabina, Sabina is number five. Number six is Jet. Number ten is Symphoria. And number two is Fly Boy. And these are the first five riders. Number 12 is Champ. And number three is Riverside Lad. And the last man to cross the line is number nine. Number nine, Beachy Boy. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The uh, fifth race on the card. The Clada Hooker Stakes. It's a place now which, uh, I think of all places in Galway City, uh, has, a, has an identity which they're very, very proud of. They have a tradition going way back. And that proudness is, is, is 
that pride is is evident now for instance in uh that they used to hold what was called the Cata festival years ago and you'd have donkey donkey races and cart horse races and so forth back in the swamp uh to collect money for for a community hall and they have you know that that strange strange pride which goes back, you know, and it's, of course, it's reflected in, in, in the Dominican community that's there that has stood with them all, all down all through the years. That, that soccer, I, I presume, through the fact that so many of the young men had say, had, had gone to England and, and, and uh, on, on the, in the English Navy and even in the Army, that, is, you know, they had come across soccer and they seemed to like that. And from then on, you find this... Uh, evolving of soccer in the Cada, starting off uh, with various teams. The Cadonians now were a great team there, and they, they, they won. They had a famous victory in the town uh, league, I think it was. It was the Schweppes Cup of 1936-37. And there were other matches as well, five sides and things like that. And the, the whole thing was that hurling, uh, the Gaelic aspect then died out, and the Cladonians then evolved into into Rovers, which eventually became Galway Rovers, of course, and eventually became Galway United. But Galway Rovers are still there; they have underage teams and they play in the swamp. So you find that the the um, that's whole area of of um, sporting activity changed from a Gaelic to, uh, if you like, let's not say alien, but <laughs> in, into. Uh, into uh, a different type of code, if you like, for, uh, from now on, from that period onwards. The Clader, once an Irish-speaking village, is now almost silent in the native tongue, and the Cúpla Fockel that echo across Fairhill and Gorry Gloss are few and far between. But Mary Brown recalls the time she attended Irish classes at the Tech in Dominic Street, and her teacher was none other than Pauliko Connery, whose stories and writings graced the pages of many an Irish language school text. He was very nice, really, now, like, you know, but he was a bit soft, which is... <laughs> some nights we wouldn't go in and he wouldn't mind. Nighttime, and sometimes in the day we wouldn't turn up. We might have to the fine day, and now we go to the beach and wouldn't go in. But he wouldn't question you, or he wouldn't send a report home about you. But he was very nice now, I'll have to say, the Lord rest his soul. He was a very nice man. And what else do you remember about him? Did you know that he was a writer and was going to become famous? Yes, that he was going to be a writer and he was going to become famous. And when he died, I attended the funeral up at the New Cemetery. That was in 1928. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. He was a famous man, really, like, you know. When you were in the classes with Parico Connery, uh, he had the name of moving out a lot. And... Well, yes, he'd give us our lessons on the board and he'd say, well, do them now, girls and boys. It was a mixed class. Girls and boys, do them now, and I'm going out. And he'd go across the road to Seamus O'Leary's for his few pints. In Dominic Street? In Dominic Street. It's Porter's now, isn't it, you say? And he'd go across the road to Seamus O'Leary's and he'd be there until 10 o'clock then, until the bell had ring, and then he'd come over and he'd say, come on, boys and girls, out now. Have you that lessons, don't you? He never looked at them. He never looked at the lessons. But uh, I was very fond of him, really. Well, at that time, did you realise that he was gone over for a few pints? Oh, we knew... We knew he was over in shape, so someone had said, 
Oh, someone on my fire a big paper or something or hit someone like you know the way they go on in class like oh we'll go across the gym so nice for him now and bring him over because it's over there. <laughs> That's where he used to be over in Seamus O'Lies having his big pint. On a Sunday in mid-August, crowds still come to the Tladder for the traditional blessing of Galway Bay as the herring season opens. Only a few boats now remain of the once famous Galway fleet but they are joined by the trawlers that replace them. Part of the ceremony of the blessing of the bay in August, uh, mid-August, is uh, the, well, the boats go out from the Sada Pier, and then around, around Mutton Island, one of the little auto boys rings a bell, a handbell at this time, and that's the signal for the boats around to gather for the actual blessing of the waters and the blessing of the fishermen. So bells, bells are very much part of the of the Sada, the history of the Sada church. And when day is done, the residents often come together to sing, to gossip, and to exchange stories. <laughs> One night we were in the club and uh, there was a big crowd. Like, and this woman, she was a grand woman. And uh, she came in and she was a lovely singer. We used to always get her to sing and all, and Molly sing and all. And uh, she always used to sing golden earrings and all this. So we were all sitting around the table and we were talking. And next she was saying, oh, in the middle, she said about her, her husband wasn't well at all. And she said, it's awful. And she started crying. And she said, I wouldn't mind, she said, well, he's so good and everything. Oh, please, God, we were saying, he'd be all right. So anyway, the following Monday night, she came down and she said, uh, oh, she said, I had to get the doctor for poor Mickey. She said, not well at all, she said. And she said, uh, he has to go into hospital, she had. But anyway, he, uh, she uh, came in this night and she said, uh, they had to get the doctor. And she said, he has to go in now, she said, to have an X-ray, she said. And she has, he has... Um, What's this? Was something wrong? Like, was she good? I don't know what now it was, but she gave us a queer name, like you know. <laughs> and we uh, we didn't say anything. Uh, like the president was there, and she put her head up that way, and she was laughing. This woman now wasn't educated enough to pronounce the big word, you see, but she called it something. It's what's this? What she called it? And. Uh, we all start laughing, like, but we didn't let her see us laughing. So we went on then for a good while, and uh, we're coming home. And uh, says, Molly, what was that she, she breached with said was wrong with her husband? <laughs> and the, what you call her saying, uh, the head, uh, the president, said, Riley, you tell her. Oh, no, you have I looked, she was walking away, and Molly was saying, what is it, she said, and she said... Uh, it strangled balls, says she. <laughs> what kind of things is then, says Molly? When I looked, one woman was across the road and I was left in the middle of the street and here was Molly. What kind of things to them? Oh, God, God, I never heard the like of them before. The office of King, or Admiral of the Fleet, disappeared with the demise of the fleet itself. However, the custom was revived in the early 70s, and the last King of Clada was Paddy Curran, 
known locally as Ladnin. Sadly, he passed away some weeks ago, and with him went a man of great kindness and understanding. The king is gone, but his voice lingers on. I love everyone in Clada, and everyone in Clada, I think, loves me. And I love to see everyone getting on, even though I have nothing myself. But some people, it, it begrudge one another, but I, I don't believe in that. That's, that's my way of going out. Well, could I take that now, Paddy, as a royal message from a king to his subjects? Oh, yeah, tell them all what I said. I adore everyone in, in the village. Well, Paddy, thanks very much for talking to us, and I better let you get back now to your royal duties. That is, if you have any to perform well, today. I've got a few horses now, <laughs> that's all. I've, I've been yacht for the afternoon down, down some pub looking at the, the races. That's why it's been retired. Well, after all, horse racing is the sport of kings. It's a good idea. That's why I'm so fond of them.